Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and looking specifically at verses 18 to 20, 18 to 20 this morning, I'll read a little bit more for context. Before we read God's word, let us pray together. Lord, we are frail children. We depend on you not only for our daily bread, which we receive of your goodness every day of our lives, but for the daily bread to nourish our souls as well. Thank you for giving us your word. Help us to read it, to make use of it, to apply it in our lives. And amidst our weakness and the temptations which assail us and the difficulty of our own flesh fighting against it and the enemies of the world and the devil, your spirit is more powerful still. Take us and keep us, O Lord, and make it, apply it to us for our good, we ask this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. 
But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. At this point in Luke's gospel, after only nine chapters, Jesus has done so many things that are incredible and amazing. He has healed the sick. He has cast out devils. He has raised the dead. And even people who weren't ordinarily following him, like Herod far away in his palace, caught wind of what was going on. They heard about Jesus. They were intrigued, wanted to know more and see him. And as Jesus' fame begins to grow and spread more and more throughout Galilee as a result of his miracles, it's at this point in Luke's gospel that Jesus turns his attention. He isn't going to stay in Galilee forever. The places where he did so many of his miracles and preached so many of his sermons would eventually see him leave, not to come back. He would set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, the cross, the grave, the resurrection, and ultimately ascend into heaven. But as we begin turning our attention very rapidly from Jesus' Galilean ministry to what is ahead, Luke pauses, Jesus has us pause here, to focus on this all-important question. What impact did his ministry have? I mean, it's not enough merely that he came and he did these things. What were the results in people's actual lives? What did they think about Jesus? What did they say about Jesus? Did it lead to a permanent, spiritual, eternal change? Or as sadly and painfully so often happens, was the seed scattered along the pathway the birds of the air came and plucked it up before it could sink into the soil and bear any fruit. Many who heard Jesus, would they not believe and would they perish? It isn't a, a vain or a worthless thing to ask then. Among these people, the people who saw Jesus in the flesh, who touched him, who were touched by him, who saw him, who received of his miracles. What do they have to say about this? Who is this Jesus? But you know what? Luke isn't just recording this story so that you will know what other people hundreds of years ago said about Jesus. The purpose of asking the question, what do people say about Jesus, is to lead to the very personal, very practical application. What do you say about Jesus? 
What impact does this gospel have on you? Do you believe in him for yourself as the Christ of God? After only nine chapters in the Gospel of Luke, you really have what you need to answer that question. If there are doubts, if there are obscurities, the answer is here in the Word. Look at the things Jesus has said. Read again with fresh um, eyes in faith the thing that Jesus has done that you might know for yourself how to give a direct answer to this question. The theme isn't very hard to figure out in these verses, is it? Jesus is forcing us to deal with the question, what do you say about Christ? After asking what other people say, Jesus will come back to press that point home on his own disciples. And this morning, I want to consider with you those two things under those two headings. First of all, what do people say about Jesus? And secondly, what does a disciple say about Jesus? Well, you'll notice in this story, the question posed by Jesus, who do people say that I am? It's posed not to the world at large, not to the crowds that were following him, like the 5,000 in the story right before this, whom he has just fed with bread and were so happy about being fed with free bread that they wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. It's not those people at that time that Jesus is asking, well, who do you say that I am? He's posing it to his disciples that you, his followers, might think about all the different things and the different ideas people have about this Jesus. Why? Here is an important point, I think. Jesus is trying to draw his disciples into this, to think through it, to wrestle through it for themselves. It's not that he doesn't know. He knows all things. He knows what is in the heart of all men. He knows what they think about him. Jesus isn't on a fact-finding mission because his purpose is pastoral, not pragmatic. You understand the difference here. Jesus isn't interested in pleasing the crowds for the sake of pleasing men. If he did that, he would have let the 5,000 people he had just fed make him king by general acclamation. Jesus doesn't feed the 5,000 and then pass out survey cards at the end like businesses to let me know how I'm doing sort of a thing. Because if he's not living up to the expectations of the crowds, he's going to have to adapt and change his style and his message in order that people will be pleased with him and listen to him, make him more palatable to the masses. I hope just saying it that way makes you realize that's not the kind of Jesus we have. And you know what? It's not the kind of Jesus you want to have either, is it? No, Jesus is asking this question 
not because he intends to change like a politician or a false teacher. He's asking this question because it has pastoral implications in the minds and the lives of his disciples. And there's something we can learn from that as his disciples too, I think. Our master was not a man pleaser. He doesn't tailor the gospel to please the crowds. Think about the feeding of the 5,000. These people want to make him king, and what does Jesus turn right around and do? He tells them things that drive them away. You want to make me king, but unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. I don't like that. They say it's a hard saying. He tells them, you can't come unto me unless my father draws you. They don't like that either. And the end result is many stop following Jesus. Well, what's the point of this? The point is that Jesus has come to preach truth, whether people like it or don't like it. And we as his disciples need to take that to heart. Are we ever tempted to shade the gospel in a way that we think will be a little bit more acceptable to unbelievers in our lives. To de-emphasize the part of Christianity that we know unbelievers don't like and don't want. Like, you need to obey the law of God. Like, if you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're headed to an eternity in hell. Let us never be among the number of those who are swayed by what the lost think is popular or acceptable, but stick close to what the truth is, to what the word of God is, like our master. But nor is Jesus' intention here to ask this question as if truth was to be figured out by general consensus. Now again, Putting it like that makes it sound ridiculous, because it is. And yet, how much has this way of thinking subtly seeped into us? You don't have to look very far in the culture to see it, do you? There are endless polls and endless surveys asking you to give your opinion on something, ranging from products to politics Yes, and even to religion. And in those polls, it never really matters whether your opinion is grounded on facts or experience or whether you know anything at all. Somehow, the mere fact that we have an opinion is considered to be somehow valuable all by itself. That permeates our culture. But you know what? That way of thinking has seeped in to how we deal with religion as well. As crazy as this sounds, perhaps in no other sphere of life is it more popular than when it comes to matters of religion. Everybody has a viewpoint. Everybody has an opinion. In fact, 
It doesn't even matter if your religious opinions conflict with mine, contradict mine. It's somehow celebrated as if it were a good thing, a desirable thing, for people to have different opinions and all just coexist. But you know what is behind this type of thinking? It's the mindset that truth, if there is truth, is not something that we can ultimately know. The truth is found in experience. My truth may be true for me. Your truth may be true for you. But there is no one objective truth that governs both you and me to which we both must submit. And one of the grave dangers of this sort of thinking so popular in our culture, when it infects the church, is this doesn't just touch matters of preference or secondary things. It can touch matters of vital significance, things that are central to the gospel itself. That's what's happening in our text. People have different opinions about who Jesus himself is. We see it here. Look at all the ones that the disciples list. Some say he's Jesus is John the Baptist. Some say he's Elias. Some say he's one of the prophets. There are, and there are many opinions now like that that circulate around about who Jesus is. And don't you think it's of the utmost importance that we have crystal clarity on this topic? But who is Jesus? Or put like Jesus asks it here, who do people say that he is? Well, some say that he was John the Baptist. Now, you probably haven't heard that one before in your day-to-day -day life, but let's stop and think about that. What led people in Jesus' own day to think that? As we think through that, we'll find there really are a lot of similarities to how people continue to think still. Some say he's John the Baptist. At least that's what Mark 6 tells us King Herod thought. Never mind that hundreds of people had seen John and Jesus together at the same time. How could he be a person that he was with on a previous occasion? Well, as Jesus John reincarnated, Never mind the idea that reincarnation is found nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the Bible contradicts it. It is appointed to man once to die and then judgment. Such an explanation that John the Baptist had died and his soul had come back and inhabited Jesus of Nazareth is pure superstition. And more than that, wasn't it even more ridiculous than the truth itself? Think about this. The same people at this time who are thinking, well, John the Baptist has risen again and come back to life. 
will be many of the same people that will reject the idea that Jesus rose again and came back to life. Their opinion is not founded in fact. It is founded in superstition. And how often is that true even to the present day? People not wanting to deal directly with the plain truth of who Jesus is fabricate all kinds of the most absurd sorts of stories and narratives and fictions to try to get out of dealing with this all-important truth. Take just one example. In the never-ending cycle of debates between evolution and creation, people are willing to believe something as absurd as that something came out of nothing. The plain and simple truth of, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In fact, some of these religions and stories and superstitions that people construct, you see them all over the world, some of them are so ridiculous and so fantastic that it requires faith. Sometimes a greater measure of faith to believe in the lie and the error than in the truth of who Jesus is. But I think there's another step to this as well. This opinion, Mark 6 tells us, was the opinion of Herod. But as you look in Luke 9, some people, not just Herod all by himself, people in general were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. And I think there's a lesson for us here in this as well. Wrong ideas, even preposterous ideas, foolish ideas, gain traction by people copying and seeking to curry favor with those who are powerful, with those who are rich, with those who are famous, like Herod. After all, well, Herod thinks this is true, and we're going to say, yeah, and we agree with that. That's our opinion, too. And how often do we see that in matters of religion? Instead of people taking their cue from the Word of God and what it says, they wonder what this celebrity thinks. And that rich person says, where the flow is going, where the influential and the elites, what they're saying, maybe it's, you know, professors or those who follow the science or whatever the case may be, is those who, those who are in positions of eminence set the tone that others follow. Even if it's something so ridiculous that it comes from the vain philosophies of the world. This idea that souls can come back and inhabit other people, where does it come from? It comes from pagan Greek philosophy. And because the wisdom of this world teaches these ideas, it has an allure to it that people are sucked into parroting after them. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you give credit to and respect and emulate. Lest their errors, in this case, damnable error, becomes your own as well.
Let us come to Herod himself. Why would Herod come up with this idea? You think of all the things you could think about who Jesus was, this doesn't seem like the first thing that would immediately pop into your head. Well, of course, he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Unless you had a story like Herod's story. King Herod, you may recall, had imprisoned John the Baptist because John told him the plain truth of God's word. It's not lawful for you to marry your brother's wife. And so John threw him in prison. But even then, Herod would still have John preach to him. He would listen to him gladly, as the Bible says, and he would even do some of the things that John said in his preaching. Have you ever seen this? The people that you know for certain are not converted. And yet they'll come to churches, and they'll listen to preaching, and they might even tweak this or that or make moral improvements and reforms in their lives but they're still lost. They haven't been renewed in their souls. This was Herod. And because he was unconverted and weak, he ended up, to save face, murdering John the Baptist. There's a lot of guilt in this man, isn't there? He knew what righteousness was. It plagued Adam. That's why he never had John put to death in the first place until he felt that his arm was twisted. He knew he needed to make moral reforms. He knew he had crossed a line when John was executed. But there's more to it than that. He had listened to John, not just tell him it's wrong to have your brother's wife, but to tell him who he was the forerunner of the Christ. One is coming after me that I am not worthy to unloose his sandal, one greater than me. Well, if John was right about this, that meant Jesus was this one, coming with his winnowing fan in his hand, who would execute judgment on the wicked. Wicked people, like Herod, knew in his heart that he was. And he did not want to believe that. And that isn't all that different from people today, is it? There are people that hear the message of the gospel, of the Bible, that hear Jesus preach, that might think of Christianity in terms of moral reforms, but when you tell them Christianity isn't just a religion of morals, it's a religion talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ that God has appointed to be judge of all the earth. Someday you will be judged by Jesus Christ and go to heaven or go to hell. People don't want to deal with that. And so they come up with these theories that evade having to deal with a just judge. Think about it. What's Herod's theory here? John the Baptist is haunting him. It's kind of like a Scrooge story where the ghosts of the past and the future come back to give him another chance at moral reformation. And we realize that's silly. 
as all of these things ultimately are when you boil them down. Isn't this how so many people, even in churches, try to evade dealing with Jesus? Christianity, ultimately, is a way for me to fix things, to do better, to have a chance to reform again, even though I messed up royally the first time. And in so doing, we completely miss the nature of who Jesus actually is. Then there were those who said that Jesus was Elias. He was the Old Testament prophet Elijah, one of the towering figures in the Old Testament that had been whisked up to heaven in a chariot of fire, never to have died. And what's more, God himself had said in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Well, they have this Bible verse in the background and they see Jesus. And Jesus is doing things like never any man has done before. He must be the fulfillment of this prophecy that one of the greats of the Old Testament had come back to prepare the way for the Christ. What do you think about that interpretation? They're quoting a Bible verse. That's better than what Herod was doing. They're trying to use the Bible to interpret what's going on in this world. It has more plausibility than Herod's interpretation, doesn't it? And they can point to a prophecy. But isn't the real question that we have to ask, were they right? Is that actually what Malachi 4 meant? Is this really who Jesus was? And we could argue with their interpretation. We could show them that John the Baptist himself was a better fit for Elijah with his rough clothing, with his diet of locusts and so forth, dwelling in the wilderness, compared to Jesus whom the Pharisees would charge with coming, eating, and drinking. We could show them and argue from the Bible that the Bible itself doesn't support that interpretation of the Bible. Never mind the silliness that if Jesus is the forerunner of Christ, why does the forerunner of Christ need a forerunner himself that John had claimed to be? But you know what? What's really going on here gives us a very important warning. And the point for us to take away is that even people using the Bible can come to wrong conclusions about religion. And not just things that are of secondary importance either, but of the most fundamental life and death, heaven and hell type of consequences. These people using the Bible came to the wrong conclusion about who Jesus was. You know why that matters? 
because Elijah cannot die and atone for anyone's sin. He can't. It wasn't his purpose, and he cannot do it. If we have a Christ that is other than the Christ of the Bible, even one that we make out in biblical language, it's a Christ that cannot save. There is salvation in only one, the one that God has sent into this world, his only begotten Son. And if we do not have him, we have nothing at all. Make believe ideas about Jesus strip that figure of any ability to save. And this is so important and should be sobering to us because heretics of all stripes who deny the truth, who deny that Jesus is God or that he was truly man, they don't come to you saying, hey, I came up with this idea nobody's thought of before. They know you would reject it. They open their Bibles. They try to get you to understand the Bible about Jesus wrongly. And in so doing, perish. Heretics love to distort and cloak their errors in the language of the Bible and under the authority of God's word. And so the takeaway for us is do not be suckered by superficial scripture appeals. Don't be so shallow that you only listen to whether it's coming from the Bible or not. You know, there are some people, even in churches, that because a guy is wearing a suit and standing up front, you think that what he's saying is God's truth. You know what? Anybody can climb the steps. <laughs> Anybody can open a Bible in front of them. The question is, is what he's saying actually what the Bible actually says? And to know that, we can't be satisfied with the shallow proof-texting approach that just slaps a Bible verse on whatever I want to say, whether or not it's actually what it means. You need to understand for yourself when somebody cites a Bible verse, is that actually what it means and what it's saying? Christ's disciples need to be encouraged to interpret Scripture for yourselves. You know why? Because you will be judged for yourself. You will not be judged by what a pastor preaches. You will not be judged by what an author writes. You will be judged for what you do with the Word of God. And so even though sometimes we get into the habit of thinking, well, interpreting the Bible is hard. I'm just going to turn off my mind and trust what somebody else says. And let me say, parenthetically, do use your pastor. Do listen to him. Don't make your own brain the rule of your, uh, what you believe. Use the resources God has given in your pastor and in commentaries and good Christian literature. But how do you know your pastor's right? And how do you know the books you're reading are right or the sermons you're listening to are right? You have a responsibility to know the word of God for yourself and interpret it. Because if you don't, 
You can be led astray to believe a completely wrong Jesus yourself. Think about these people here. Well, you know, they have this Bible verse out of Malachi 4, and yeah, I think I'm just going to go along with what they have to say. And in so doing, they missed the only Savior that there was. Yet still others had another opinion. And this one I find more amusing than the other two. At least the other two had the courage to say somebody specific, right? This was John, or this was Elijah. This one's, well, he's like one of the old prophets risen again. And you have to ask, what does that even mean? <laughs> and part of the, the allure of some of these opinions is that you can't pin them down, right? There's almost something noble and virtuous in not being able to come to dogmatic and definitive positions in religion in our own day. If you're one of those radicals, those right-wing extremists who says, you know, the Bible actually says this and this is what it means and everybody else is wrong, people are going to think that you're arrogant, that you're extreme, prideful. And so, religious opinions are crafted, specifically as it comes to Jesus, where we have this sort of vague general sense uh, that can, the details can be filled in in our own individual contexts. Yeah, Jesus is important. There's something special about him. But how he's special and what he's done is something that I can't really say, and, and you know, saying isn't even the most important part of it. It's recognizing that he fits in to this general pattern of what God is doing. And of course, this doesn't go nearly far enough. But you know what? There's even more to it than that. Apparently, at this day and age, there was a tradition among the Jews that before Christ's time, or right around Christ's time, some of the Old Testament prophets would rise again from the dead. Where does that tradition come from? You can look in vain in any passage of the Bible to find it. It's not there. It was a made-up tradition. And yet, it was repeated often enough with authority from the teachers that people believed it, and it just became commonly accepted that this is what was going to happen, even without the authority of God's Word. And that happens today, too. There are all sorts of myths about Jesus that circulate around, not just out there, but even in professing Christian circles. How many times has a wrong Sunday school lesson or some TV show or something worse like that affected how Christian people think about the Bible? When you press them on it, their idea has no basis in the Word of God itself. It's important that we test what we believe based off of the rule of the Bible because so much of what passes for Christianity today is fake. It's made up. 
you've heard it so many times, you think it's true. And when someone says, well, where is that found? It's not there anywhere. And those are insidious. Because over time, what happens is our made-up stories and ideas tend to take on religious sentiment with us. And when push comes to shove, we don't want to give them up because it's become a family tradition, because it's been something we like and has good memories associated with it. But it could very well lead us away from him who is the only Savior and the only Christ. Be very careful that our understanding of Jesus is not colored by the stories of men, but it's the true Jesus and him alone. And in one way or another, all of these answers to the question, who do people say that Jesus is, are still with us today. Now, you may not have heard someone say he was John the Baptist or Elijah, but you've heard these same sorts of things from wrong thinking. You've heard people talk about Jesus as the product of the philosophies of men, as just a moral teacher. You've heard Jesus fit into the narrative that the politically powerful, rich, and famous people want to foist upon society. Yeah. A Jesus that is more accepting and tolerating and at home in modern woke culture than the Jesus that comes out of the Bible itself. You've heard Jesus taught in ways that are meant to ease and assuage guilty consciences. Not because he can atone for the sins of people and take away the guilt of sin by his death and resurrection, but because people don't want to leave their sins, but they don't want to feel guilty. A made-up Jesus is foisted upon the world and even in some churches where Jesus just accepts you as you are. Now, the gospel is free, and I don't deny that. Everybody and anybody who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as he truly is will be saved. Praise God. But Jesus does not accept people as they are. He saves people from their sin. He does not accept people to live in their sin still. Between those two things is an eternal world of difference. What Jesus are you trusting in today, my friends? There are many people even in professing Christian churches that have uncritically swallowed the Jesus of the heretics. A Jesus who is not actually God, the second person of the Trinity. A very God, a very God, begotten, not made. Or we think of him somehow as less than actually man, like as we are, yet without sin. 
In other words, there are still all kinds of false Jesuses presented today who are less than what the Bible teaches. And it's true even in the circle of churches. We need to beware of that. That's why Jesus wants us to know. What do people say about Jesus? Is what you are hearing, is what you are believing, the truth? Well, Jesus' first question, we've talked about at some length, is who do people say that he is? But the real practical application of this sermon comes from the second question. The reason why we ask the first is to get to this. Who do you say that Jesus is? My friends, this is the most important question of your life. What do you say about Jesus? You may have heard a lot. I trust you have as you come to church and hear his word preached. You may know a lot about the errors of what wrong people think about Jesus out there. But you know what? Sometimes people make Christianity too much about feeling good because they haven't fallen into the cults of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or this wrong way of thinking or that wrong way of thinking. Be guarded against error. That's a good thing. But you know what? You must deal in your own soul with Jesus. There's coming a day when Jesus judges the world, when you will see him face to face. You will look upon him. And in that moment, you will give an account to him of what you did with what you have heard and what you know. What will it be? Luke, in his account here, is clearly showing us that in this gospel, there is no such thing as neutrality towards Christ. The crowds may have many different opinions about Jesus, but they all had this in common. They had an opinion about Jesus. You cannot avoid it. You live according to it. You may think that avoiding the question will excuse you, you may think that being one of those people always checking it out, or in biblical language, always learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth is an excuse. It is not. You cannot have an escape from dealing with him. But who do you say he is? Peter gets it in one. He is the Christ of God. Now, first of all, do you believe that? I hope the answer is yes. But if the answer is yes, then move on to the next step and understand that that carries a lot more in it besides just simply saying the right thing. It's not just saying magic words that saves anybody. There are all sorts of people who could say that Jesus is the Christ who have absolutely no idea what that means. Judas is scary was among the number of disciples when Peter makes that answer. 
From all we can tell, the apostles were all affirming the truth of this statement. Did he really, spiritually, savingly understand? Do you? We'll consider very briefly just a few things that this entails. Peter was not just saying magic words. He was saying it out of a context. The Christ of God, in a biblical sense, is the anointed one, is the Savior. First of all, he is God himself. The Son of God is God. If you have a Jesus who is not God, you have no Savior at all. The second line, he was a prophet. He is the one that God sent to make known to us the will of God for our salvation. He is a priest. He is the only sacrifice for sin. Sin must be punished. Our sin must be punished. And it's going to be punished in him or you. He is the only alternative. He is the intercessor. That means he brings us to God. Sometimes we have the idea that we have this some sort of right to come before God and pray to him and expect that he'll listen to us. We have no access to God whatsoever without Jesus as our priest interceding for us. Is all your dependence, is all your religious trust resting upon him? He is the king. Someday every knee will bow to him. But it's not just someday. He must be obeyed. He must be submitted to. If you have a Jesus that will get you out of hell, but doesn't require you to obey his word and follow his law, you do not have the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus people like, because there are benefits without obligations. But it's not the one revealed to us in Scripture. This has tremendously important practical ramifications. And here they are. If we say that we believe this, if we say that we know Jesus as the Christ of God, do our lives reflect that that's true? We say he's our prophet. Do we actually listen to his word? Submit our thinking to it? Crave it. Regulate our lives by it. We say that his, he is our priest. Is all of our religious duty, worship, affection mediated through him alone? We say that he is our king. Are we really obeying him? We say that he is our God. Do we really worship him as God? My friends, do you know Christ in this way? What do you say about him today? Finally, one last point for our encouragement. And that's, you'll notice that this interaction between Jesus and his disciples occurs in the context of Jesus praying. Matthew, when he records this story, tells us that when Peter says that he's the Christ of God, 
Jesus answers and says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Luke doesn't record that exchange, but he shows us the same truth in a different way. With all the confusion, with all of the error, with all of the sin and people missing Jesus, if you believe in Jesus today, how did that happen? Because you're smarter than other people? Is it because you're lucky? Not at all. Luke is showing us it's because Jesus prays for his own. Jesus prays so that your eyes of your mind will be enlightened and your understanding opened. It's part of his work as the Christ to give his people the knowledge of who he is that they may be saved. Our salvation, our very ability to recognize Jesus as the Savior depends on Jesus in the first place. Now, how humbling is that? But how encouraging is that as well? That if today as you sit here, you have seen him, you do know him, it's because he has prayed for you. It's because he will not let one of his elect perish. Oh, my friends, if you see him, then hold fast that profession. Adore him. Worship him. And never, ever be tempted to trade him who is altogether lovely, our only hope, our only salvation, for a cheap substitute and an imposter. Let us stand together to pray. Oh Lord, how humbling a thing it is. Even our ability to know Jesus depends upon Jesus. And yet we would have it no other way. We live by his merit and his mediation we live by him exercising the offices as our Redeemer. We live by the life of the Son of God. Give us the grace, every hearer here, to truly know him, to savingly know him. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen. The world behind me cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back.